two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. Those are the seven main ingredients of a Big Mac, one of the most famous fast food creations of all time. Of course, who knows what other godforsaken ingredients are actually in a Big Mac, but let's not dive down that rabbit hole. We don't exactly have a hefty legal budget around here at Henderson Studios. The reason I mentioned the Big Mac is because a recent survey found that more Americans can name all seven ingredients in that famous burger than can name all ten commandments. Now, on one hand, it's not surprising, is it? After all, there are only seven Big Mac ingredients and ten whole commandments. That's a whopping three more commandments than ingredients. And it takes longer to recite the commandments than it does to list the ingredients in a Big Mac. On top of everything else, there are professional marketers who have worked on making the ingredients in a Big Mac as memorable as possible. The Big Mac jingle has been around since the 1970s, and the Ten Commandments have only been around since... Oh, wait. Never mind. Scratch that last one. The point is, there's big business involved in making the Big Mac as memorable and appealing as humanly possible. And if you can't list all the ingredients in a Big Mac, ask yourself whether you can name more of the Ten Commandments or more variations of Coca-Cola. Coke, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, Orange Vanilla Coke, etc. Now someone might say, okay, but why are the Ten Commandments so important? After all, aren't New Testament Christians no longer under the law? Why would we want to focus on these outdated rules when we have been set free in Christ? And it's true that certain parts of the Old Testament law have been set aside because they were perfectly fulfilled in Christ. We no longer partake in sacrifices, for example. Nor do we have a priest who mediates for us because Christ himself is our once-for-all sacrifice and our great high priest. He is the one mediator between God and men. At the same time, however, throughout the history of the church, when God's people have sought to instruct new believers in what it means to be a follower of Christ, two of the most common tools they've used has been the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. In fact, listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the Old Testament law. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works by which they are justified or condemned, nevertheless the law is of great use to them as well as to others. This is consistent with what Paul says in the letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 2 verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law no one will be justified. If the law is not an instrument by which we are counted righteous, then what purpose does it serve? Historically, Christians have identified three primary uses of the law. First, the law informs us about the wise way to live, both in our relationship to God and in our relationships to others. Imagine, for example, if there were no traffic laws. What if it were up to each individual to define for themselves what a red light means, or which side of the road to drive on, or what to do at a four-way stop, or whether you should come to a full stop when a school bus is unloading students? That would be incredibly dangerous, wouldn't it? 
As it turns out, unchecked freedom may not be as great as we might think. We need rules to help us live. Now imagine if everyone obeyed all the Ten Commandments all the time. Wouldn't that be a great world in which to live? The law is not ugly. It is good and righteous. The law teaches us how to live in wisdom and love. The first use of the law is as a helpful rule for life. Here's how the Westminster Confession describes the second use of the law. It also reveals to believers the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. Therefore, when they examine themselves in the light of the law, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of their sin, together with a clearer view of their need of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. In other words, the law is kind of like a mirror that helps us see our own sinfulness. When we look into the law, it has a revealing effect. It shows us in specific ways how far we fall short. It's one thing to confess that we are sinners. The law helps us to be specific in our conviction and in our confession. But by showing us the depths of our own sinfulness, the law also shows us the heights of Christ's obedience. In the words of the Westminster Confession, the law gives us a clearer view of our need for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. If we're honest with ourselves, it's difficult to imagine that someone could genuinely keep all these commandments perfectly, yet that is exactly what Jesus has done. The law is a signpost, as it were, that points us away from ourselves and toward Him. That's the second use of the law. It reveals our sin and the perfection of Jesus. The third use of the law is as a restraint for sin. By reminding us what our sin deserves— And by reminding us of God's approval of our obedience, the law is like a guardrail that keeps us in the paths of righteousness. Imagine a father who warns his child about the danger of stepping into the middle of a busy street. The father is not saying, I'll only love you if you stay in safety. It's a preemptive warning because he knows better than the child what is best. And he's trying to give his child an opportunity to listen to his voice and to avoid harm rather than learning the hard way. Of course, while the law can have all these uses, the law is limited by our own flesh, by our own inability to obey and listen. This is why God has given His Spirit to those who are in Christ. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, These uses of the law do not conflict with the grace of the gospel, but are in complete harmony with it. For it is the Spirit of Christ who subdues and enables the will of man to do freely and cheerfully those things which the will of God revealed in the law requires. In other words, God did not only give the law. He also promised a day when He would make a new kind of covenant. Listen to the promise He made through the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." We now live in that era 
when the presence of the Spirit to enable us to walk in obedience to God is not only a future promise, it is the present possession of all who are in Christ. Here's how Paul puts it in the New Testament. This is from Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's design, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in those who walk according to the Spirit. The Ten Commandments are not a blueprint for how we can earn redemption. They are a summary of what it means for us to live as God's redeemed people. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. We should not strive to obey God because we're trying to earn anything from Him. To do that would be to ignore and deny the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf. But we should strive to obey God because we love Him, because we want to live in a way that pleases and honors Him, and because we want to be conformed to His character. So it it turns out that the Ten Commandments are an incredibly helpful God-given tool for us not to earn our salvation, but to live as God's saved people. And this way of reading the Ten Commandments is not something that I or anyone else have innovated. It is present within the commandments themselves. We can ask this question, how do the Ten Commandments begin? Of course, the logical answer is they begin with the first commandment, right? But is that right? Look again. Better yet, listen to how the Ten Commandments actually begin. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is only after God says that, that he then says, You shall have no other gods before me. Before God ever says, you shall or you shall not, he says, I am. He reminds his people, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God. And this is what I have done for you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's another way we could put it. It's not an accident that Exodus 20 comes after Exodus chapters 1 through 19. The book of Exodus does not begin with God saying to the people of Israel, I see what a desperate situation you're in. I see your slavery in Egypt. I see how Pharaoh is oppressing you. So here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a list of rules to follow. I'll check back in with you in, say, five to ten years. If I find that you're obeying the rules sufficiently, then I'll deliver you from slavery. No, that's, that's not what God does at all. He redeems them first. He brings them out of Egypt. Then he brings them into a covenant with himself. He does not save them because of their obedience. He calls them to obey because he has already saved them. The same is true for us. 
God does not save us because we have obeyed him. He saves us unto obedience. You can hear this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice, Paul does not say we're created in Christ Jesus by our good works. He says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us that we should walk in them. Or as Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He does not say, If you keep my commandments, I will love you. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is not a way we earn God's love, but it is a way we live as his beloved. All that we do in obedience to him is because of his unearned grace to us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.